0: Church, my name is Mark, one of the elders here at the Ridge, and uh, um, it's my privilege to bring the word to you this morning. Um, the guys at the back are going to put a PowerPoint up. We have not practiced, um, so if we're out of sync, be gracious to them. Um, and uh, if you're wondering why am I up here, um, I haven't preached for about a year and a half, and um, I think I'm up here because a couple of weeks ago, Nita said to me. You're really starting to sermonize the announcements, which was her very gentle way of saying, you're hogging the mic, you're taking quite a long time, you're preaching already too much. So I think uh, Joey and um, Peter decided, let's let him get it out of his system. And so um, thank you, gents, for the opportunity. I would like you to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32, and you can just keep your finger there. Um, We're not going to read from there just yet. As I've been praying about this morning, I've just felt strongly for you the story of Jacob. And um, so I'm going to start with his backstory For us to understand what's happening in Genesis chapter 32, we need to understand where Jacob's been, where he's come from. And um, the first thing I want to tell you about Jacob is before he was even born, there was a promise over his life. Um, In Genesis chapter 25... Um, it tells us that uh, Rebecca, she had these two boys in her womb and they were struggling in there. So it was, you know, she was worried and she prayed and the Lord said this to her. He said, um, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. And that's quite a strange thing for God to say because um, birth order is very important in the Jewish culture. The firstborn has a responsibility to lead the family when the uh, father can't anymore. And he's even entitled to a double portion of the inheritance. So I'm glad I'm a firstborn um, th- this morning. Um, so for God to say to Rebecca that the older shall serve the younger was quite strange. And then... The next thing we see is on their birthday, this fighting between Esau and Jacob that's basically going to follow them their whole lives. Uh, Even on the birthday, Esau comes out first, but Jacob, jostling for position even at that stage, comes out holding Esau's um, heel. And so he's given a, a dubious name. Uh, Jacob means to grab by the hill, that makes sense, because that's exactly what he was doing in the, in the moment. But it also means to, uh, he cheats. So to be a deceiver or a, a, a cheater. And as we're going to see with Jacob, this name follows him and causes him much shame. And he acts on this name. So our identity, we often... The way we see ourselves the way we think about ourselves our actions will follow that um i'll get into that more a bit later so uh, jacob ends up deceiving esau twice two different occasions the first time um you can blame esau mainly for it Uh, esau's out in the field uh hunting comes out back home and he's quite tired he's famished he's hungry jacob senses an opportunity he's a good cook and cooks a beautiful, tasty stew, and Esau's desperate for it. Um, So Jacob says to him, I'll give you the stew, but I want your birthright. Now, you might think it a silly um, exchange. Basically, um, Esau's giving up half of his possessions for a bowl of stew, Um, but we do tend to make silly decisions when we're hungry. And... um, Anita and I, we don't have a, a big budget. We, when we go shopping, we try to be quite disciplined. On occasion, we have made the mistake of shopping hungry. I don't know if any of you have made this mistake. It's amazing. Money, suddenly, not important. We can afford this. We can afford this. The stuff that ends up in your trolley. Uh, wisdom is flying out the window when you're hungry, and that's what happens to Esau in this moment. He decides, if I don't eat now, I'm going to die anyway, so what use is my birthright to me? And he agrees. He gives his birthright to Jacob over a pot of stew. I'm not going to be too harsh on Jacob for that one, because Esau agrees to it, and Esau's being quite um, silly in the moment. But the second time Jacob deceives Esau, it is inexcusable. Isaac is old, he's blind, He wants to uh, give the firstborn blessing to his son. I don't think he put too much weight into the little wager the boy's had over a pot of stew. He still sees Isaac as the favorite. He still sees Isaac as the firstborn. Isaac is a man's man, rough, gruff, tough. Esau, sorry. Esau is a man's man, rough, gruff, tough. And Jacob is a mommy's boy. Smooth skin, a bit of a soft touch. And... You might have made bets like this where you didn't really take it seriously. Um, I remember I was playing pool with a friend once at a prefect camp. And I was, he was terrible. And I was beating him quite badly. And we got down to, I just needed to sink the black ball. He had every ball still on the table. And he made a bet with me. he said, if I beat you, will you run around this table naked? We were at the Morgan Bay Hotel. Ah. <laughs> uh, didn't see much risk in it. I thought he was challenging me, my pride in the moment. And so I said, no, if you beat me, I didn't even ask me anything if I beat you, you didn't. No, no, it's quite clear I'm going to beat you. So if you find a way to miraculously win this thing, I will run around this table naked. And you know what happens. I line up that black ball, I sink it beautifully, and the white ball just rolls, 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 lands in the pocket and forfeits the match. He won. In the presence of all the other prefix." I took this as a, that we weren't really being serious though, were we? They did not take it so. And I had to strip down, run around that table naked, just got my shorts back on when a bunch of ladies came in. So escaped with my dignity, sort of. And Isaac is looking at this exchange between Jacob and Esau in a similar way. He is still going to bless Esau. Esau is his firstborn. And he says to Esau, go out into the field, get a ram, Come back, and then I will give you the firstborn blessing. And Esau is just out being obedient, doing what his fathers asked him to do. And Rebekah comes to Jacob and says to him, Now's the chance. Now's your moment. You're going to go in and pretend to be Esau. You're going to get that firstborn blessing, which is basically the confirmation of the birthright that had already passed between them. You're going to be the leader of this family, you're going to um, have a double portion of uh, the inheritance. And Jacob wisely says to her, but he's going to know. You know, he's going to know it's, it's me. And so they dress uh, Jacob up in Esau's, in, in clothes, like animal skins, so that he would smell like Esau. Esau was a hunter. And the, Esau was quite hairy, so they uh, put some hair on him. And Jacob stands before Isaac. Isaac can't see very well. But Isaac asks him point blank twice. Are you Esau? And Jacob lies point blank twice. Yes, I am. And Isaac says, but it's Jacob's voice. So he asks him to come closer. And he smells him. Because he can't see him very well. And he feels him. And eventually Isaac decides, it's Jacob's voice, but it's Esau's smell. It's Esau's touch. And he follows through and he gives Jacob the blessing of the firstborn. Esau's done nothing wrong. He's outside doing what his father told him to do. At this moment, he comes back in, comes to receive the blessing from his father, and Isaac says to him, I'm sorry, my boy. There's nothing left for you. What's done is done. And the first time Jacob tricked Esau, I think Esau probably was a bit cross and thought, but you know... I was being silly there. The second time <laughs> Jacob tricks Esau, Esau is fuming. And Esau's your man's man, the rough guy, even Estebeth. Um, Jacob's Ross Cronier, you know. You have no right to uh, a fight here, to win here. Rebecca here, over here is that Esau is planning to murder Jacob. And she says to him, my boy, please, you need to flee for your life you need to run from here. Isn't it ironic? Jacob's tried so hard to get possession of this promise over his life. And the moment he attains it, he has to leave it all. He doesn't have access anymore to his father's possessions. He has to leave his family, and he runs for his life, and he has nothing. And it's in this place in his life, up until now, we don't see any evidence of faith in Jacob, there's no mention of prayer to God, seeking God, asking God. Jacob has devised plans over and over and over cleverly to, to get his way. And God has maybe sovereignly used that um, to get Jacob to the place that he's in. But now that Jacob has nothing, we see in Genesis chapter 28 that he has an encounter with God. You don't have to read it, it'll come up on the screen. Um, and it's in this place of being lost out in the wilderness with nothing, running away from, from Esau. And running away from all the promises God had ever given to him. Um, that Jacob gets a dream, and in the dream, he meets God. And at the end of the dream, he prays this prayer. And this is his conversion. And he says um, in Genesis chapter 28, Verse 20, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. It's a very immature prayer, to be fair. God, if you'll do this for me, 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 then I'll. And even uh, he gets saved here, I have no doubt, because you're going to see what transpires in his life afterwards, there's clear evidence of faith and a relationship with God. But the first prayer is not too great. And some of us might be able to relate to it. I see some nodding in the audience. My first prayer, just be honest, probably going to think less of me, it's okay. Um, I was 14 years old, just gave my life to the Lord. My first prayer was this. Lord, I want a girlfriend. I want her to be hot. (laughs) Amen. That's it. I didn't even try and couch it, pretend like I praise you, something like trick him into... No, it was just, Lord, I want a girlfriend. I want it to be hot. By the end of the week, I had a girlfriend. She was hot to my mind, to my eyes. And two weeks after that, I wished he never answered my prayer. Because she dumped me for my best friend. It caused me a lot of pain and suffering. And I learned, so you've got to be careful what you ask for. Um, God will sometimes give it to you. And so maybe we've all experienced that. If you're praying like that, I want to challenge you. Stop asking God for things. He already knows. It's okay to ask. I'm, I also ask for stuff. But the, the core of our prayer has to be, I love you. Thank you. Praise you. I worship you. After that, if that's right, if that's what prayer is, then, yeah, we can ask for things. But if, I mean, and I'm trying to sound like I've made progress here, but even this week, Anita and I were praying, and we are quite broken. We just put all the kids down, and we we're praying together now. And prayed for about ten minutes, and realized every single prayer was, "Lord, do this for me." Lord, do this for me. Lord, do this for me. At the end of that, I had to go. God, please forgive me. I, I haven't come very far at all, um, but thank you for your grace in my life. So Jacob has this conversion experience, and he ends up in exile for fourteen years. So for fourteen years, he's away from the the place of the promise, what God was going to give to him. And in that time, God is faithful. God blesses Jacob, God takes care of him, God prospers him, um, and eventually, after 14 years, God says to him clearly, Jacob, it's time to go home. When Jacob leaves, he doesn't leave because God told him to do anything. When Jacob leaves, he leaves for fear of his life. He's, ma- he's in control of the ship. He's making the decisions. But when Jacob comes back, God, this is how I know he's in a relationship with the Lord, God speaks to him clearly. And God says, it's time to go back. Jacob is still afraid. Esau is waiting. And we start the journey of Genesis chapter 32. Jacob, um, I'm just, we don't have time to read it all, so I'm just going to highlight key points. In the very first verse, God reminds Jacob that he's with him. So Jacob crosses into uh, the territory, and he has a a vision, uh, spiritual eyes are opened, and he sees all of these angels on the embankment. And God, isn't He so faithful and when He's told us to do something and it's scary and we're fearful. Often He'll uh, encourage us. Often He'll come and remind us of His goodness towards us, of His presence with us. I've seen that often in my life. Two verses later, Jacob sends a couple of men on ahead. He wants them to meet Esau before he gets there just to uh, feel out the water. God has said, come back, hopefully come back to, you know, friendship and forgiveness and uh, the report comes back we met Esau he's got 400 men with him this is not a welcome party this is not a reconciliation this is an army 400 men with Esau and Jacob it says in verse 7 was greatly afraid and distressed God's told you to go back. So you said, Do it. I'm with you. He's given you a supernatural revelation that He's with you. But seconds later, circumstances look impossible. And Jacob's response isn't faith at first, it's fear, distress. And we can relate to that. God speaks to us, God leads us, God guides us, God reveals things to us supernaturally. And the circumstances don't seem to fit. And it's harder to trust in what we don't see. Jacob is struggling too. But he's not um, without faith. However, first, he does do what Jacob does best. He devises a plan. He comes up with a plan and he divides the camp into two parts. And he sends the first uh, half ahead and the second half follows. And he reasons that if Esau is going to attack us, he will at least then only attack the first half half, and the second half will then escape, be free. Jacob then, very wisely, does not put himself in the first group. He puts himself in the, even behind the second group, he puts himself in the third group. And he sends each group on with, uh, like, rewards, gifts. And he's trying to soften Esau's heart before he gets him. If he gets one group of gifts, a second group of gifts, even a third, and then Jacob follows at the end. Maybe he will find favor with Esau, and eventually Jacob even separates himself from his own family, and he isolates himself, and he finds himself alone so that he can pray. I want you just to, before we look at that, he does pray a prayer. I'll read it to you. Just observe his progress in his spiritual walk. Remember the first prayer? Do this for me, do this for me, do this for me, and I'll follow you. This is his second prayer, straight after he finds out Esau's got 400 men. He says, O God of my father, this is verse 9, Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, And now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers, with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. You see the progress already in his faith? God, I'm not worthy of anything. Thank you for everything that you've given to me and blessed me with. As much as he's still devising his own plans, relying on himself to a degree, there is a definite growth point where at the same time he can pray and say, God, I'm nothing without you and I need you. But there is still an element of I'm going to do this and please bless it. (laughs) Please look after it. And I think I I missed it. You don't have to go back to it. But I'll just highlight a few points um, from the backstory before we read this very interesting text that's about to happen while Jacob's praying. The first thing I want you, that I learned as I prepared this, Jacob's backstory, is the promise. You can go back to that slide if you want to, um, Emil. The promise that's over his life is for all of us. Okay? He received a promise before he was even born. In Psalm 139, I'll read it from the screen. Um, sorry, go on two slides, we'll get there. One more slide. One more, what we can learn from Jacob's backstory: There is a plan and a promise for our lives that was in place before we were even born. So in Psalm 139:16, David says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none. Before even one day, before you were born, God saw all your days. And the promise that he has spoken over you, from the very beginning, you can hold on to and are true. We sang about it today. Peter read a scripture. He is faithful to what he has promised to us. The scriptures are full of promises to us. Um, they're not dependent on you. You might think, oh, God chose Jacob because Jacob's better than Esau. I, I would dispute. I don't think there's any heroes in the brotherhood of Jacob and Esau. Both of them are fallen men. God chose Jacob before he had done a single thing. If this raises any questions of predestination, by the way, Joey's happy to answer them after the the service. Um, But before you did anything, he had you in mind and his plans for you. Don't sit there thinking, but Mark, you don't know what I've done. I've disqualified myself. I'm out of the race now. I've done this, this, and this. No, despite Jacob's failings and his actions, God had a plan for his life. God has a plan for your life, a promise for you. The next thing I learned looking at Jacob was identity played such a a crucial role in his life and his actions. He was called the deceiver, and so that's how he acted. I question, though he was promised, I question whether he was meant to act the way that he did to acquire that. Would God not have fulfilled those promises? If Jacob hadn't have taken them into his own hands, I'm convinced he would have. But Jacob twice, and I think it brings him much shame. Twice, he, through his own cleverness, acts in a certain way. And I ask myself, what false identities have I built into my mind that people have said to me that caused me to act a certain way? And the last thing we get from the backstory is... The conversion experience. God reveals himself to Jacob. But Jacob has to respond. Jacob has to say, you will be my God. He might do it in a very poor, immature way, but he makes a choice. He makes a decision. And there's this principle in Scripture. It's a very important one. And I often think I fear for you as a church if we don't get this. So I want to spend a bit of time unpacking this for you. Jesus says in Matthew 13, verse 12, the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. At first thought, this is awful. This is South Africa 2018. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer. There's no justice. What is Jesus talking about over here when you look at it on the surface, the face of it? The one who has, give him more. You've got three million bucks, let's give you another three million. You've got three rand, get that three rand to the guy with three million. Doesn't seem right. But Jesus said it, and we know because Jesus said it, it's true. So what does it mean? It's a spiritual, um, there's a spiritual element to this. When God reveals himself to you, he's putting something in your hand. And if you respond to it, if you act on it, He will give you more. When you choose to resist it, He will take it away. And I've seen this happen in my life over and over and over again. When God has said something to me and I've responded and acted on it, the blessing is greater awareness of Him in my life, greater sense of His Spirit with me, more of His Spirit with me, more desire for Him, a hunger, easier to pray, easier to come to Your Word. On the other side, I've gone through large, long spells where through my own hard-heartedness and resistance of what God is saying to me, the opposite happens. And you might be able to relate to that. And so this morning, if God is going to reveal something to you and He put this Word on my heart for you, I believe He will reveal something to you. Understand this. We are not called as a church to come sit here every Sunday and listen to nice words, encouraging things, and go home as if nothing happened. We are called, as Jacob was, to respond to God when he speaks to us. And if you're going, but I don't know if God is speaking to me, that should be a a flag of saying something might be wrong. Because the guy who says, I don't know if God is speaking to me after he's been a Christian for a long time is the one who had something and it's actually been taken away. Somewhere along the line, God did speak to you and you didn't do what he said you must. And now for a long time, you're walking through this relationship. Maybe you go to church, maybe you read your scriptures, maybe you do a bunch of things and make you feel like you are a Christian. But if I say to you this morning, do you know that God is speaking to you? And you don't know the answer to that or you can't remember the last time he did that. You need to go there. You need to pray. You need to ask God, God, I'm sorry. What was the last thing you said to me? What haven't haven't I done? And God's not far away. This isn't a, you know, you are gone now, you are out. I walk through a valley for years. The moment I respond to God in obedience, he's there. And there's an acceleration in my faith again. And my relationship with Him is stronger than it's ever been. That can happen for you this morning. The key is, are you going to respond to what God puts into your hand? This morning, He might put something into your hand and require a response from you. What will that be? Consider that. Okay, let's get into the text. By the way, if you're thinking, "Uh, Mark, you've preached for nearly half an hour and you've only just gotten to the text, don't worry, I did account for that. Um, I'm going to go through this quite fast. Jacob separates himself, and now he's left himself alone to pray. And a very interesting thing happens immediately, and I'll read it to you. It's very short. The same night he arose and took his two wives, and read in verse 22, his two female servants and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone to pray. This is his Gethsemane. He's about to have his second major experience of God in his life. The first time it was out in the fields in a dream. This time God shows up physically and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Isn't that strange? You're trying to pray and it seems like this distraction. This guy wants to wrestle with you. And Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, which means the face of God, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And the last verse I'll read. The sun rose up on him as he passed Peniel. Notice the spelling error. It's not really, but in case you spotted it. He passed Peniel limping because of his hip. If you're worried that scripture is inaccurate because of a spelling error, don't uh, be concerned. It is not a spelling error. There are two different ways to spell Peniel, and both are used in this um, uh, text. All of the ancient atlases have multiple occasions where Peniel is spelt with an I or spelt with a U. People who want to uh, be divisive will call that a spelling error. It is not. It's a very interesting text. The first time I read it, I thought, what? I mean, I was about 15 years old. I thought I'd start in Genesis. It was a mistake. Um, and I read about Jacob wrestling some guy, and this guy pulling his socket hip out of his socket, and now this guy's God, and what is going on over here? Why would God lose to Jacob? First of all, he couldn't win. didn't win. Um, why does he hurt Jacob if it is God? Um, what is the point of the story? And so this morning, I do think that's an important question to ask. By the way, you might say, no, Mark, the, it is God because the title of the passage in your text might say, Jacob wrestles with God. And the problem with that is that's the only part of the text that isn't, um, what's the word, canonized. It isn't, it's been placed there. Okay? Someone has interpreted the text and placed a heading. So be careful of placing too much stock in what headings say. Um the, the person has decided this is God yeah, and so he's called that Jacob wrestles with God. We need to do a little bit more investigation if we want to be convinced of that. Um, so my question I'm going to ask is, is it a man or an angel or God? My first thought when I read this when I was 15 was that must be an angel, like a representative of God. I don't understand why God would need to get into a wrestling match or what's really going on over here. Um, why does Jacob call him a man? at first he says in the beginning he says and Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day and the reason is because he comes like a man he comes in the appearance of a man at first Jacob thinks he is wrestling a man he doesn't realize he's wrestling an angel he doesn't realize he's wrestling God and so that's why that word is used originally but by the end of the encounter Jacob is convinced that he has in fact wrestled God. He names the place, the face of God. The testimony of Jacob's life after this will refer to this encounter as the moment God met him and redirected him and solidified something in him. It's a powerful moment in his life. I do want to draw your attention to one text um, because you might find it and then think, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm aware of it. In Hosea chapter 12, verse 4, Hosea does a little commentary on this event, <coughs> and he he calls um, he says Jacob uh, strived with an angel. Um, so it it would appear at first that Hosea is has made a decision that this is uh, actually an angel. I don't think Hosea is wrong. I think it is an angel. But the interesting thing about um, The context of Hosea chapter 12, and I want you to go and read it and check. Hosea 12 verse 3 speaks about Jacob struggling with God. Hosea 12 verse 5 speaks about Jacob and God, and in between that it speaks about Jacob striving with an angel. He's recapping Jacob's encounters with God throughout his life. He just calls the middle one this encounter with an angel. Um, I'm comfortable enough with that, because God shows up as an angel a few times in the Old Testament. Um, he's called the angel of the Lord. And you go, well, how do you know that? Well, every time we see angels show up, normal angels, they never take glory away from God. Anytime glory is coming towards them, maybe the person falls at their feet and worships and thinks that they should be worshipped, the angel immediately corrects them and says, I'm just like you, don't worship me, I'm a servant of the most high God. But there is an angel in the Old Testament. He shows up a few times. He's the angel of the Lord. And he does take glory that God will not share with anybody. So who is he? Only God can bless. Only God can change a name. And there's someone I know who changes someone's names. And... um, Likes to answer questions with questions. What is your name? Why do you ask me your name? Why do you ask me my name? I laughed when I read that. I believe, this is just my belief, there's not, um, I can't prove it to you. But I believe this is a pre-incarnate encounter with Jesus, who is the angel of the Lord. He shows up a few times. He doesn't just show up. We know he's been there since the very beginning. And he shows up in the gospel story throughout the Old Testament several times. And Most commentators believe that Jacob, in fact, wrestles with God here. Jacob names the place, the face of God. The angel would not have allowed Jacob to be confused. He did, in fact, encounter God. Um, Okay, so then my three questions quickly are why does God lose to him? Can't he win? And I'll relate it to you like this every evening I have to wrestle my son, I don't win. I've tried to win a couple of times. It doesn't go well. Uh, He has a bit of a meltdown. But the purpose of my wrestling with Sebastian is not to beat him. I don't want to beat him. I know I can beat him. I don't have to prove it. I'm not so insecure that I have to come home and let me just beat up my son a little bit. I can feel better about myself now. I love him. And when we wrestle, it's us spending time together. But um, if you watch it, he gets hurt sometimes. And I'm actually, if I'm honest with you, I'm a bit glad... I want to toughen him up. I know what's coming. I know he's going to encounter stuff at school. He's going to um, get run into a few times. He's going to have to toughen up a bit. And the safest place for him to toughen up is with me because I'm never going to push it too far and I'm never going to really hurt him. And when Jacob climbs into the ring with God, God is coming to him with love. But God wants to deal with something in Jacob. God doesn't want to win. He wants to strengthen Jacob. And he wants to establish his identity. Jacob has a massive identity issue because of his name and the stuff he's done in his past. He's about to see Esau, and he is ashamed of what he's done to his brother. And God comes in this night, wrestles him. He wants to strengthen him, and he wants to teach him something about himself. And the next thing that happens is God touches his hip and puts it out of place permanently permanently. Not for, okay, feel a bit of pain for now and be weakened for now, but permanently for the rest of his life, he will walk with a limp. What? And we see something similar happen to Paul, praying, God, will you remove this thorn from my flesh? Many people, many uh, commentators believe it's his eyesight, we don't know for sure, Um but he prays, whatever it is, and he asks God to remove it. And this is someone who's seen God move miraculously. Many of his prayers have been answered. And he asks three times. He doesn't just ask once. He keeps asking. And every time, God responds, no. And eventually, God tells him the reason, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Jacob is too dependent on Jacob. Jacob is intelligent. He comes up with plans. He gets things done. And even now, we see it earlier in his prayer, even though he has a relationship with the Lord, even though there are some growth points in his life, he is still dependent on himself and his intellect. And God comes in and weakens him. He's dealing with his pride. Jacob will have that reminder for the rest of his life. But... My belief is he left this encounter stronger than he ever was, more confident than he ever was. With the limp, go face Esau. If I had any chance before, it's gone. But God is with me, and it's okay. He's allowed to weaken me. And the last thing that God does is he changes his name. You will no longer be called Jacob the deceiver. What has Jacob tried to do his whole life? Get the blessing that is due to him. And he's used conniving, cunning, anything he could to get first. And now God blesses him, changes his name, changes his identity, not, but makes him sure of what his identity really is. Your identity is in, in him. You have striven now with God. You didn't get this by cunning or deceit. You got this by struggling with me. Not letting go. Not giving up. And now I'm going to bless you. And this is who you really are, Jacob. You are Israel. Which means to struggle and strive with God and to prevail, to win. Man. He's dealing with his shame. Don't carry around all of that identity, all of that nonsense that you had before. You thought of yourself. Come to me. Find out from me who you are. And Jacob, I love how it ends. The sun rose up on him as he passed Peniel, the face of God, limping because of his hip. And he will refer back to this encounter as an amazing experience with God. So this morning, church, I want to say to you that every one of us will be in the ring with God at some point in our lives. Some of you are there now. I've been there this whole year, wrestling with him. If you're there, and when you get there, remember, He loves you. He's not fighting with you because He wants to beat you. He is strengthening you. It's going to be uncomfortable. He might weaken you in some way. But everything He does to us is for our benefit, for our good, even if it feels like it is not. Don't let go. I have this whole year tried to let go. I feel like the only way out is to actually let go and run away. Don't let go. Because when it's over, he blesses you. When it's over, he releases you. You are ready for the next phase. You are more confident in who you are in him, though you may be weaker. He might weaken you to deal with your pride, but he's going to establish your identity in him so that you will fulfill the purpose that he has for you, the one we spoke about at the start, the promise that he has over your life. We've got communion, and don't forget the part in the middle. Don't leave this morning without considering what God is saying to you. I really believe this sermon was for you. I don't know what part applies to you. I don't know what, at what point the Holy Spirit convicted you of something or placed his finger on something. And if that hasn't happened, even during communion now, let's take this wonderful opportunity to quiet our hearts before the Lord and ask Him, Lord, what are you saying to me? If you're in that fight with Him, ask Him to give you His perspective on it. Give you patience, endurance. If He's weakened you in some way and you're looking at it in a negative viewpoint, ask Him to give you His viewpoint on it. If you're not sure of your identity in Him, ask Him, Lord, who am I? What name would you give me?